There are only a few people in our audience this morning that are old enough to really know who Philip Paxton is. Really, only a few of you. You see, he was an author for a number of different publications in the 1850s. Okay, I tried. So there's only a few of you old enough to know who Philip Paxton is. Probably most of you have never read anything that he wrote, though one of his articles really gained a lot of attention, became quite famous. It's an interesting title that he put on it. It is called A Stray Yankee in Texas. Listen to that again. A Stray Yankee in Texas. Now, the title of his article is really curious to me, but when you find out what he was writing about, it'll really make you scratch your head. That article was all about the gold rush in California, a stray Yankee in Texas about the gold rush in California. But somehow it made its way into a number of different newspapers across the country. Maybe people were just interested in reading about the gold rush, or maybe that title, a stray Yankee in Texas, caught their attention. A lot of people read it because it coined a new term. That's how we know that a lot of people read it. And that term still floats around today. In his article, Paxton was writing about the courts that existed during the gold rush to deal with claim jumpers. So people that had a rightful claim to a mine or to a gold claim would take people to court that they believed were trying to jump their claim or take it from them. More often than not, when the rightful owners took these claim jumpers to the authorities, the judge sitting on the bench would stare at them blankly and would do nothing, absolutely nothing. A lot of the time, the claim jumper ended up with the claim and the person that was the rightful owner left with nothing. Paxton, when he was writing about all of those events, termed those courts the kangaroo courts. In the state of California, they weren't really state-sanctioned courts at all. The people had elected these judges to walk over the, or watch over the mining camps, and they were the ones who made all of the decisions, but they did not make them very well. Paxton says that he named them kangaroo courts because of the blank stares that were on their face, much like a kangaroo stares at a human when they see them for the first time. Now, Like me, you might find yourself thinking the term kangaroo court had to come out of Australia. It didn't. It came right here from our own country, and it is all attached to how a kangaroo would stare at a human being blankly. Now, here's a little aside for you. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Just going to throw it in, and you can do with it whatever you want. Last Sunday, Tina and I had lunch with some folks, very credible sources, who told us that the state of Wyoming is seriously considering releasing kangaroos in their state for tourism. They want people to drive from all over the United States to come see kangaroos hopping all over Wyoming. Then their hope is that they will be so prolific that they will be able to open a kangaroo hunting season. (laughs) Who said, oh... Wouldn't that be cool to go kangaroo hunting in the United States? Now, my question is, how many people are going to battle against them, and isn't that really going to become a kangaroo court in its own right? You know what? I'm throwing out my best stuff this morning, and you guys are not, you're not grabbing it at all. I am, I am really trying. 
Well, Philip Paxton thought that he was on to something when he coined this term kangaroo courts and people picked up on it all across our country. But the reality is he may have come up with the name for it, but the whole idea of a kangaroo court is as old as the Bible. The whole idea of how they operate goes all the way back to Scripture. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you have your Bible with you, I'm hoping that you're going to jump around with me this morning and see this for yourself. Starting in Matthew chapter 26, no pun intended there on the jumping around, verse 57. First record of a kangaroo court right here, Matthew 26, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now listen to how Jesus responds. This is masterful. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. At no point did he ever answer their question. Isn't that great? That is just a sign of the kangaroo court. They were trying to push something through. They had their own agenda, and they didn't care what the truth was. So the chief priest says to him, did you really say this? And Jesus didn't say yes or no. He says, you have said so. That's a great response and it matters. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? After Jesus' answer, when the high priest didn't receive what he wanted, he just started to make his declarations louder started blustering away. Same thing that these liars did who brought testimony against Jesus. If they said it loud enough, they believed people would say it. If they said it enough times, they believed that their lie would become truth. That's the way kangaroo courts work. Now, according to idiom.com, not idiot, but idiom.com, a kangaroo court says, or they define a kangaroo court as something that has no legal standing in the territory in which it exists. It's a bogus court that is placed there only by the people. And that's exactly what we have here. When Jesus was brought before the chief priest, he was brought before a court that the state did not sanction. It was a religious court. They had no authority at all. The only teeth they had were the teeth given to them by the people. That's it. That's all they had going for them. So if the Jews said, this is the way we want it to be, whether they were telling the truth or lying, they could do what they wanted to up to a point. But really, this court had no authority, none whatsoever. But they were trying to convict Jesus, and the people were willing to do it. They were willing to lie, 
and they were willing to cast their vote to pull it off. Now you have to wonder what it is that got Jesus in so much trouble. If you are new to the Word of God or you are new to Christianity, you really do have to wonder, why is he standing before the chief priest? Why was he drug in there? What did Jesus do? Well, he was 33 years old at this point. The last three years of his life were his public ministry. He'd been teaching. He'd been healing. He had been bringing people out of the grave. He'd been restoring life, sight, the ability to walk. All kinds of miracles were performed by Jesus. But there were really two events that led up to his arrest. Two events that upset the chief priest and the leaders of Judaism enough that they determined they wanted to kill him. Let me show them both to you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. We'll start in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus went into the temple and took control. When he walked in there and he saw what was happening, he was appalled. So he turned over the tables, cast the money changers out of there, made whips and drove them out. He took control. The chief priests, the satraps, the leaders of the church were devastated by that for one simple reason. All of those money changers that were selling sacrifices in the courts of the temple to give them to the high priest or for the people to give them to the high priest had to pay a little tax to the chief priest, to the satraps. They were getting kickbacks from it. So when Jesus turned over the tables and said, this isn't going to happen, not here, not on my watch, and the chief priest and the, the Pharisees and all of the, the leaders were watching that, their wallets were shrinking. This was an economic move, and they were extremely upset about it. I want you to see what happens. Jesus had left. He had gone out to Bethany, stayed there for a while. They couldn't find him. Then he came back, verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Isn't that great? That is just, that's just good stuff. So follow what's happened. He had gone out to Bethany. Now he's back in the temple. They have surrounded him and said, Hey, we got a question. Who told you you could do that? By whose authority did you turn those tables over? Who told you to drive the money changers out of here? Now you've got to look at the subplot behind that. While all of that was going on, those guys were paralyzed. They could do nothing to stop him. Jesus cleared the temple out. The temple mount is a huge place. 
The courtyard of the temple is massive. Jesus went from table to table to table, turning them over and driving them out. We're not talking about something the size of the lobby of our church where there was one table and he lifted it up and turned it over. This was huge geography. Jesus drove them all out of there while the chief priest, the satraps, and the leader of the Jewish church were watching, unable to do anything at all. And then after it was over, after Jesus had turned the place into a place of pure ministry, healed people, and he taught them and he led them, Jesus walked out of there unharmed, went to Bethany, and disappeared for a bit. Now he comes back and they said, we got a question for you. Who told you you could do that? By whose authority did you do that? Are you carrying a letter from the chief priest? How did this happen? And Jesus didn't answer their question. Instead, he threw them his own question and left them confounded again. They were upset. But then the second thing happens, and this is the icing on the cake. Go with me to the Gospel of John. Go through the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. You'll be at the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. Jesus has a good friend named Lazarus. The Bible calls him the one whom Jesus loves. Lazarus got sick. Word came to Jesus that he was deathly ill. Jesus did nothing about it. He let his friend die. And he let him die for a very specific reason. He was buried and put in a tomb, and four days later, Jesus came. He did all of this that his glory might be revealed. I want you to watch what happens. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. What a great story. What a great story. Jesus has been healing people in the temple after he drove out the money changers and now he has brought somebody out of the grave. The Pharisees are mad. The chief priests are mad. Other people actually believed in him because of this. We know that from verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But verse 46 says, a conspiracy rose up as a result of it. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered around the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There's the conspiracy. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. They're so upset because Jesus raised somebody from the dead. At first glance, that's what you might believe. But that is not it. The Pharisees, the satraps, the chief priests are upset. And they said it themselves. Because if Jesus kept doing what he was doing and people began to follow him, they would lose their position. They would lose their power. They would lose their control. It was all monetarily driven. If Jesus continues doing this, we're going to go broke. If Jesus continues doing this, we are going to lose the hold that we have on this place. So they determined to kill him. That's where it came from. Kangaroo court. He turned over the temple. He drove out the money changers. Their wallets shrank. Jesus raised people from the dead and people began to believe in him in huge numbers. And they thought, we're going to lose all of our following. We better kill him. Those were the two events. The problem they had was the fact that after each one of them, Jesus disappeared. He went to Bethany the first time and he went to Ephraim the second time. They couldn't find him. That's, that's how God does it. He knows when he's stirring the pot. And then if he doesn't want to be found, he's not going to be found. So Jesus left. He was gone, hiding from him. There's this interesting character in the middle of that story that rises to the top. His name is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the one sitting on the bench of the kangaroo court, if you will. He's the judge. The problem in Caiaphas's world, though, is that he may carry the title high priest, but he does not have the authority of the high priest. I'll show you how I know that. Let's go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 18, verse 12. After they arrested Jesus, when he came back into Jerusalem, all of it, by the way, in his timing, this is what happens. Chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Interesting little twist in the story. You've got to follow it all the way through. When they arrested him and they wanted to try him, they did not instantly take him to Caiaphas, the high priest, to the kangaroo court. Instead, they made a stop first at Annas' house. Now, anybody remember Annas showing up any other time in Scripture? Annas appears another time when Jesus was born. And you know who he was? He was the high priest. Now, according to Old Testament law, when a person was high priest, they were high priest for life. Until they died, they carried that position. The problem in Annas' world is that people followed him in huge numbers, and he gained great power. So the Roman government said, we got to do something about this, or this man could lead a revolt against us. So we're going to remove his title. Annas had the title high priest removed from him by the Roman government, and they began the process of rotating the job. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. He had other members of his family that would become the high priest. It would alternate in years. That was never God's plan. That was never God's design. That was the Roman government's plan to try to suppress the Jewish people. But when the chief priest and the satraps and the, leader of the leaders of the Jewish church decided that they needed to take care of Jesus, they didn't go to Caiaphas because he didn't have power. They went to Annas. They wanted Annas to do something about it. 
They wanted him to make it all happen. My friends, what we have here is a beautiful example of the Jewish mafia. That's all this is. This kangaroo court was being controlled behind the scenes by the Jewish mafia, and Annas was the godfather. So you picture it this way. Annas takes Caiaphas out for a little walk in the alley, and he says, boy, we better do something about this. They're coming for the family, and we've got to make sure that we put this to rest. You're the man with the power. You do something about it. So Caiaphas went back to work to see what he could do. Caiaphas had a problem, though. Remember this. He was the leader of a kangaroo court that had no authority whatsoever. He had no power. He could not pronounce a death sentence on anyone. That was beyond his pay grade. So he needed somebody else to get involved. He needed the government to get involved. So his first stop was with Pilate, the governor of the region. So he takes Pilate under his wing and says, hey, you got to do something about this. Pilate questioned Jesus, found no reason to prosecute him and certainly no reason to execute him. So Pilate gave him back to the Sanhedrin and said, this is a religious deal. You guys work it out. They said, we can't, Pilate. So my guess is, Phil's speculation, that Annas came to Pilate and said, hey, Pilate, here's a little bit of money. Take care of this for us. That's just a guess. That's all it is. And Pilate said, all right, I'll get back involved, but I don't have the ability to do this, nor do I have the inclination. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, who is actually the king of the Jews. And now Herod rises up in the midst of the conspiracy, and the the responsibility to kill Jesus now rests on his shoulders. But Herod has a problem. Follow me through all this. I know it's a lot of history. You just hang with me. It's biblical history, and I have a point. Here's Herod's problem. Herod's name was Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the leader of the Herod family or the Herod clan. When Herod the Great became king of the Jews, he did it by military power and a political backroom deal with the Romans. Herod said, I want to watch over this whole area. I want to be the king of the Jews. I want to make money off of it, and I can keep them in line for you by military power. The Romans said, you know what? Israel's a long ways from us. We really don't want to have to be down there. It gets kind of hot in the summer, so Herod, you take care of it. And they gave him the position and free reign to subjugate the Jewish people by military power. And Herod was extremely good at it. When he wasn't ruling over them and by military might, he did it economically through taxes. Herod was a jerk. And he only had the position by military power and Roman authority. The problem is the real king of the Jews would have that position by lineage, by birth. You remember when Herod the Great was sitting on the throne and three wise men came to him and said, a star in the east has told us that one has been born king of the Jews? The Bible says that Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him for this reason. If there was somebody born king of the Jews, they had a rightful claim to the throne and Herod would be booted out. He would not be able to hold it. He would lose his power, his position, and all of his money. So Herod the Great said to those wise men, you go find this one that was born king of the Jews, and when you find him, you come back and tell me because I want to go and worship him as well. Liar. He had no desire whatsoever to go worship him. When the wise men didn't come back and tell him where this one born king of the Jews was at, he did something completely heinous. He sent his soldiers to the region of Bethlehem with this command, you kill every male child under the age of two. 
slaughter them, put them to death. Now, in that story, there's two other kind of interesting little details. One, actually, it just comes out twice. Herod never left his palace. He didn't follow the wise men to go find Jesus. He did not go with his soldiers like any good king would have to kill the babies. It begs the question, why? There's a reason. And this may be why Herod Antipas did what he did. Herod the Great, by the time Jesus was born, was already suffering with a terrible, terrible disease. There are several extra-biblical historians that tell us about it. As far as I can tell through the research I've done, only 1,800 people through all of history have wrestled with this disease. It is internal. It's a disease that is killing a person from the inside out. It destroys their organs. It begins in the kidneys and works its way from there. It's excruciatingly painful. It has some of the same symptoms as worms that are eating the inside of your body until eventually they break through to the outside. I will save you all of the gory details. But it is so excruciatingly painful that Herod couldn't get out of bed. History tells us that there were several times that he tried to take his own life to escape the pain. So when he tells the wise men, you go look for the one born king of the Jews, probably every part of him wanted to go, but he couldn't. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't leave the bedroom. When he told his soldiers, you go kill all of those babies, he probably wanted to go and make sure the job was done, wanted to take care of it himself, but he couldn't. He couldn't get out of bed. So Herod Antipas, his son, who is reigning during the time of Jesus' crucifixion, When Jesus stands in front of him, the Bible says that he mocked him, that he did not believe who he was, that he actually beat him, but there was no way he was going to sentence him to death because he saw how his father died, and all of that was tied to Jesus. Now, if you were Herod Antipas and you thought to yourself, all of these years later, 33 years later, I watched dad die. I was there. There is no way in the world I'm messing with this guy. You'd send him back to Pilate too. Say, Pilate, you take care of it. And Pilate, of course, went back to the people because this was a kangaroo court. And he said, what do you want me to do? And they said, crucify him. Then he gave them Barabbas and then he sentenced Jesus to death. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. All the way through. And all of it was orchestrated by God's greatest enemy, the devil. That's where it came from. And two different times... Jesus thwarted, actually three different times, Jesus thwarted the devil's plans. When he was just a baby, he went to Egypt until Herod died. Then he came back. Then when they were after him initially, after the turning over of the tables in the temple, he disappeared to Bethany, and then he came back. And then after Lazarus was raised from the dead, he disappeared again for a few days, went out to Ephraim, and then he came back at the Passover. You know why? Because the timing had to be perfect. He had to come back during the Passover. Satan was doing everything he could possibly do for 33 years to keep Jesus from the cross. That's what he was doing. If he could have killed him before the cross, nobody would have ever seen him as the Savior. If he could have kept him from walking back into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, nobody would have ever followed him tried to kill him. God knew what he was doing, and he knew who he was up against. Jesus moved all of the pieces on the board exactly as he should have so that the timing would be perfect.
He would die on His terms in His timing. And all of that because of love. All of that because of love. That's why He did it. In the process, He defeated the devil and showed us that we can do the same. The empty tomb today stands as a symbol that we can have victory over the enemy. We do not have to live a defeated life, but rather we can live a victorious life simply by understanding that we have victory over the enemy. That's all we have to have. That's it, is the understanding that when Jesus came out of the tomb and he defeated Satan and all of that was done his way and in his time, that we have that same power resting with us. The Bible is very plain in the book of Romans, book of Ephesians, that we are in a spiritual battle That's where this enemy lives, and he is trying everything that he can do to keep us from the cross. Because if he can keep you from getting there, you will never understand that your sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus, and you stand before God forgiven. You stand before God as a new creation, not stuck in the past, not stuck in the defeat, but you stand before him victoriously. And if he can keep you from getting to the empty grave, if Satan can keep you from getting there, he keeps you stuck in the battle so that you never find the victory. So Jesus led us from the cross to the grave and right on out of it that we might understand victory, that we might defeat the enemy. What a great part of the story that is. I often say that the empty tomb is a place where we change our clothes. We take off our flesh, we put on the spirit. It's also the place where we turn into spiritual superheroes. It's kind of like a phone booth, if you will. You go in there as a weak human and you come out as a powerful child of God because it is there in the empty tomb that you find these weapons. This is Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. It is in the empty tomb that we find the armor of God that allows us to defeat our enemy. Use it and you will find the victory. Ignore it and you will continue to experience defeat over and over and over again. Thankfully, the Lord has given us a beautiful depiction of the empty tomb. It's a place where we take off the flesh and put on the spirit. It's right over here in this corner of the the sanctuary. It's called the baptistry. When we walk into that water, we walk in there with our flesh. When we come out, we come out in the spirit, wearing the armor of God. We're ready for the battle then. Romans chapters 5 and 6 give us a great depiction of the fact that the baptistry is like the tomb where Jesus was buried. We leave our sin there. We come out a new person. If you have never experienced that, don't you try it. See what happens. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Follow him into the tomb and right on out of it and live the victory. See what happens. If you were here last Sunday, you saw a number of people do that very thing. It's very exciting. 
Today we're going to see the same thing in just a few minutes. We're going to see the same thing. In fact, 25 times since the first of this year, people have made that decision at Libby Christian Church, 76 times in the last 18 months. That's just great stuff. Follow Jesus into the victory. Walk right through the tomb and right through it so that you can do that. You will not regret it.